So we are working through the Gospel of John, so if you'll turn with me to John chapter 4, we're going to look at part 2 of this great, great interaction between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. All right, so uh, part 1 last week we, we showed and meditate on the wonder that Jesus would offer the satisfying love of the divine bridegroom himself. Um, to this woman whose history is, when it comes to romance, is a mess. Uh, she, she comes hurting uh, by her own decisions, and I'm sure by decisions that have been done uh, to her and against her. And so it's just a great portrayal of God's love meeting us in our particular mess. And then this morning, what we're going to look at is the effect that Jesus's grace and kindness has on this woman and, and how that affects our way of living in the world. So let's read God's Word this morning. It's John chapter 4. We're going to start in verses 13, and we're going to read down to verse 45. This is the Word of our God. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when tr the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. And when He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to, to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, 
One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that, that, reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. This is God's word. Uh, He's spoken to us today in love. Uh, Let's pray. Father our God, as we meditate on this great passage, um, may we... Forget not all your benefits, um, that you are a God who forgives sins, who crowns us with your steadfast love and mercy, uh, that you are the giver of every good gift. You satisfy us with good things. And so I pray as we look at this text, show us Jesus, that we might leave here confident in your love, ready and willing to talk about Jesus to all who are interested and to all who would ask. So may we be, believe the gospel and go out from here as faithful witnesses across the street and around the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the, the great and perhaps stressful parts of if you, you decide to participate in the London evangelism trip is they're going to train you and, and give you opportunities to go out and talk to strangers about Jesus. And I know that's a nightmare for introverts, <laughs> um, but it's, it's one of those great opportunities to go out and just to have that awkward encounter of saying, look at what the Lord has done for me. Right? He's real. He's true. Will you worship him in spirit and in truth? And it's, in a lot of ways, it's actually, I find, easier to talk to strangers about Jesus uh, than with people that know you. Because you can be rejected by a stranger, and you're like, well, I guess I won't see them again, and, and move on. Uh, you know, it's, it's easier to be transparent with people who don't know you well. Right? It's just low risk in those contexts. But when it comes to going public with your faith, with those who know you, your, fr- your friends, your family, uh, your coworkers, it's a lot more risk because they know you. Right? I mean, for the Samaritan woman... She was risking, she's going to a community that had shunned her once, once she had this interaction with Jesus. I mean, there's a reason she went by herself to the well at noon. Right? But for her, the power of this encounter with the Messiah, with Jesus, was enough to overcome her shame and her fear to go, go be bold in her invitation to say, come and see, is this the Christ? Is this the Savior of the world? Right? So when was the last time you took that risk of faith to go public and, and invite someone to investigate, to, to see the, the person of Jesus? It could be come to church, it could be read a, read a gospel, or just to come out and say, hey, I'm, I'm a Christian. 
in the context when they're bashing Christians. I mean, it just depends on where you're at and what's going on, right? Um, you know, and it's interesting, in 2018, this is, so this is five years ago, the religious research at that time showed that for most Americans, at least 60%, they rarely have a conversation about spirituality. Right? Rarely. So for half of them, half of that 60%, it's once or twice a year. Maybe a handful more times for the rest. And then the research also showed that only 13% of practicing Christians talk about spirituality once a week. Right? I'm assuming outside of a public worship. Right? And part of what this passage is going to help us see is that to, to not talk about Jesus, to not talk about the Messiah, his grace, his salvation, all these great words, it's to ignore um, a large part of what it means to be a Christian, which is to have a testimony and to share it uh, in public with gentleness and respect, right? And so what I want to do this morning is let's look at the, the interaction that Jesus had with this Samaritan woman and, and say, you know, what is it about Jesus that gets her to overcome her fear, uh, to be willing to, to go public with her faith. Because um, if you remember, right, it said that the Father is seeking those who would worship him. She is one of those who has been sought out. She wasn't looking for Jesus. She wasn't looking for a religious experience. She wasn't looking for grace. She, she basically was ambushed by Jesus at the well as she was just minding her own business trying to get a drink. And the power of that encounter power of any encounter with Jesus, according to the scriptures, uh, sends you out. Right? Right? So I'll, I'll, I can say it again in a different way, that the ordinary Christian life is to experience the personal love of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the bridegroom, the, to have rivers of living water flowing from you, as John writes. Uh, the effect of that is, is witness, to go and just can be as simple as just come and see. Right? It doesn't take a seminary degree to say, do you know what Jesus is like? Do you know who he actually is? Right? It could be even more blunt, and this is from a non-Christian, uh, to ignore this aspect of being a Christian. This is uh, from an interview in The Atlantic online, a young Dartmouth college student who grew up in the church who understands what the scripture says he says, I don't consider a Christian a good moral person if they aren't trying to convert me. It's really blunt. Because if you're not trying to convert me, you're not worried about my future and eternal life. Right? So how do we get to that point this morning where we're unashamed of the gospel, unashamed of Jesus, and it's just natural to talk about him uh, where, where God has us during the week? To get to the point where we see, as Jesus said, the, the harvest fields are white. Uh, there, there are people to be loved who, need, who are longing for good news. So let's start to get there. Let's ask this question of the text and of us. What are you worshiping? All right, we have to talk about worship this morning. Worship is one of those uh, religious words, but I think it's helpful to make a connection between Jesus' offer of living water to the woman at the well, and to worship, uh, to, to what we live for, what we love most, what we value, right? Because 
Right? We read earlier that uh, Jesus asked this woman to go bring your husband as part of this confrontation. And she says, you're right. She says, I have no husband. And you're right. You've been with five different guys, and the one right now is not your husband. And then all of a sudden, the, the conversation moves from uh, being personal to theology, right? It moves from her, her shame to this topic of worship. And, and I, you know, in the past, I've always read this as like her trying to run away from where Jesus is, is leading her, uh, that it's a, a diversionary tactic, right? Because it's a lot easier to just, you know, throw out some Bible verses that you've memorized. Uh, it's safer to quote theology than it is to get personal. Right? It, it's easier to wax eloquent about selfishness and depravity, right? To use our reform categories, total depravity, that there's, and just quote a Bible verse, there's no one who seeks God, but it's different when you say, that's me. Right? That's, that's personal. Right? Give me even more blunt, it's, it's harder it's easier to say, I believe that everyone is depraved. It's different when you are the person who stands up in church and says, pray for me. This is what happened in one church. An elder stood up and said, pray for me. I'm going to the beach in New Jersey that I don't lust when I'm surrounded by women in swimsuits. That was a public thing to say out loud. Show me, Jesus knows me through and through everything I've ever done. In other words, what he was saying is, pray that I don't worship the wrong thing. So this is where I think this change in topic makes sense. If you understand Jesus' question, go get what you have been worshiping. Someone who loves you. This husband that you love, that you've been living for. Show me what has disappointed you. Bring them here. I think Jesus has her on the hook. She's interested in this living water, even if she doesn't understand what he's offering. And so then she responds with this honest dilemma, where do I find living water? Where do I find something that will give me eternal life? Where do I meet with God? Um, the Jews worship in Jerusalem. We worship on this mountain. Where do I meet God to find peace? Where do I find satisfaction? Where do I worship? I mean, this is... Very similar, I think, to a person who has a crushed heart and Googles God and doesn't know what religion to try. Right? Where do I experience a divine love that would heal my broken heart? Where do I go to worship? Right? You could put it another way. Um, Paul Tripp is a pastor, Christian counselor, um, and in his materials on marriage, he tells this story about the shortest time between the wedding and the request for counseling. Right? It was the next day on the honeymoon. <laughs> he got a phone call from the bride in tears. You know, I forget exactly how he puts it, but you know, he's just not what I expected. And... and <laughs> And what's fascinating is the way he responded. He says, oh, good, <laughs> great. Because now that you've been disappointed by human love, we can talk about, you'll, you'll understand the gospel. We can talk about worship. Uh, we can talk about your need for Jesus because no human love can satisfy. And so as you're asking, what are you worshiping? And I think that's part of the question that Jesus is asking this woman. Um, that's what worship is. 
it's worship. It's, it's what you value, what you love, what you're living for. Right? So what have you been worshiping? Because what you worship is what you, what you testify, what you bear witness to. Right? What you love most is what you talk about most and what you're unashamed to talk about. So what, are you, what have you been worshiping? I like the, one of the ways you can find that answer is uh, Archbishop William Temple's, right? Your religion is what you do with your solitude. That when you have nothing else to think about, what do you meditate on habitually? What do you daydream about? What do you fantasize over? What do you, what do you long for? It's a clue. It's worship. What, do you, what are you living for? Another way you could find out what you worship most would be like the Samaritan woman. What have you been greatly disappointed by? Right? That you lived for and now has crushed you. And so in some ways, this conversation with the Samaritan woman is Jesus holding up a mirror and says, how is your current worship situation working out for you? Right? Go and get your husband. Not, not well. So you can also find what you worship, what you live for, uh, in your crushing disappointments and isolation. You know, this is a one story, right? This is one way Jesus interacts with people. But just look at this, the beauty of this. Look at the way Jesus is pursuing the lonely, the crushed in spirit. Uh, if you, that is you, if you've been disappointed by what you worship. Notice that Jesus is seeking you, pursuing the weak and wounded, those who have battle scars because of broken relationships. Now, to, to come and worship the living God in this context of this story is to come, a place, come from a place of need, to come from a place of thirst, uh, saying, Lord, I need a love that will actually satisfy me. Right? And to see that God is seeking us even as we're guilty, while we are guilty of worshiping the wrong things, of giving too much value to, to other people. Right? I mean, that's, that's the, the testimony of this woman. She is guilty of worshiping finite things, expecting infinite satisfaction, and she's hurt and wounded because of it. And so she asked Jesus, where do I go? Where do I go for worship? Do I have to go to Jerusalem, or can I just stay here on this mountain at our, our altar? The Samaritans worshiped in a different place, right? And Jesus responds, well, you worship what you don't know. We Jews worship what we know. Salvation is from the Jews. But his bigger picture is that you have to be ready to worship in spirit and truth. Right? This is where Jesus is going to get your attention. Right? His answer to her is, right, it's not here. It's not there either right? He says, the hour is coming where neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming and is now here uh, where true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And so here's, here's the astounding answer, right? If you're, a, if you're a Jew reading this, this is jarring because for them, the, the place you went to meet with God was Jerusalem, right? If you want to have 
If you want to go to the fountain of living waters, you would go to the temple. And if you want to have an Eden-like experience, you have to go to Jerusalem. And the Jesus, who's ethnically Jewish, it says the hour is now here where it doesn't where the physical location where God will meet with you no longer matters. Right? Worship will not be, I'll put it this way, worship will not be restrained by a physical location. The particular mountain doesn't matter. Right? You won't have to be ethnically Jewish and go to Jerusalem. The good news is that the kind of worship Jesus offers is for the world, it's for Samaritans too. And so the location... Right? The Father is looking for those who are going to worship where they're at. Uh, there, there are Old Testament prophecies that, that, that pointed to that reality, that the, the mountain of the Lord is going to fill the whole earth right? so that all the nations can, can stream like a river up into God's presence. That's Isaiah 2. Right? I mean, look at what it... You gotta, this is a weird way to think about it, but to worship in spirit and truth. If you came here expecting to worship God wherever you're at, you've already been Christianized, right? You've already kind of embraced some of the teaching of this passage. But the idea of worshiping in spirit is, notice it's not capitalized, so it's not referring to the Holy Spirit, although it may be an allusion to that. Um, but I think it means you're, you're going to be able to connect to God who is spirit in your spirit uh, internally. Right, that, that the hour is coming, something's going to happen, but it's also happening right now in this conversation with, Jesus, with the Samaritan woman where you can worship the Father uh, here, even though you're not at a specific worship location. Right? That you can, in your woundedness, be, be sought after and ambushed by the kindness of Jesus and lead you to worship in any location in all of creation. Right, worship will no longer be dependent on a place. That's what's happening for the Samaritans here and now that we taste the benefits of here in Boston Spa. Right. I mean, do you, do you see how hopeful that is for people who, like the Samaritan woman, who are drowning in shame and disappointment? Uh, that you could seek God in your living room and have him answer? Or you could be minding your own business in your living room and have God ambush you. And all of a sudden you wonder where this desire and thought comes from. Is there a God and does he love me? Right? The Father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Right? The other part of worshiping in spirit is uh, it has to be worship in spirit and truth. Right? It's, it's not just enough to say um, does, the location doesn't matter and I think I'm connecting to the divine in, in general. Your worship should, for it to be helpful, should be real. Right? It should could correspond to reality. And I think there's two parts of this idea of worshiping in truth, that, that the worship of God will only heal your wounded heart if it's actually true, if it's not a placebo. Um, that if you're actually communing with a God of love, not just a figment of your imagination or hope. Right? 
And then the flip side is, right, Jesus is truth, as he's going to say. Right? He has to be real. He has to be true. His, the story has to be real for it to be helpful. But the other side is you need Jesus' words to resonate with your reality, with your current suffering and your current uh, disappointments. Right? That, put it this way, to worship in truth is to have the truth of who Jesus is meet you where you are. And, for, and that will lead you to worship. Because for that to happen, you have to stop and meditate on who Jesus actually is. That's what's happening in this text. She's getting her mind wrapped around that he's the Messiah and what all that means. Right? But you, if you stop and, and meditate on what Jesus says about himself, his beauty, his worth, his value, uh, his power, his sovereignty... His presence, what it means to be the Messiah, what it means for, for him to make it possible for you to worship him right now. Um, right? You need to worship in truth, and you do that by meditating on the truth of who Jesus is in his words, the scriptures. Right? You know, Pastor Tim Keller would say, right, take any verse, any truth about Jesus, about God, and let it dawn, onto you, dawn on you until it gets radioactive until the truth begins to shine. You'll be worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth as you use the truth of the scriptures, the truth of Jesus, and the reality that this is our Father's world. The Bible's telling the truth. Right. And so you go, okay, how is that possible? Well, the hour is now and coming. And in the Gospel of John, what is the hour? It's it's an illusion. It's looking forward to Jesus' death and resurrection. That you can worship in spirit and truth because of who Jesus is. <laughs> he says this to the woman. You can worship now because of who I am here. But the hour is now coming, right? Because of the death, of, my death and resurrection is coming. Right? And this is, this is part of worshiping in spirit and in truth. Um, to look at the hour. What did it cost Jesus to love you so that you could worship him? So that you want to worship him? Now that he in love, for those who rejected him, chose to lay down his life for people like the Samaritan woman who worshiped everyone but him and everything, anything but him who worshiped creation rather than the creator, as Paul writes. That when you look at the cross and you see Jesus crying out, I thirst, I'm, I'm longing for my Father's presence. He's crying out, I thirst, as the one who promises living waters. Even as he dies, cut off from the fountain of living waters. He's, he's even worshiping as he lays down his life, longing for God is in a dry and weary land. <laughs> because when, what's accomplished on the cross is, is seeing your, your, the Savior of the world, your Creator, uh, be crushed by what he loves. Something he signed up to do in love for us, longing for God, even as he bears our sins away. 
And then he rose again on the third day so that all who come to Jesus, the truth, may, may worship the Father in spirit and truth. Where you are at rather than having to go to Jerusalem, which enables this love, this, this fountain, this river of love to flow out to the, the four corners of the earth, to every, anyone who will believe. And so when Jesus says, the hour is coming, as the reader of John, right, knowing it's the cross and resurrection, we're knowing he's going to lay down his life to make this reality possible. And for the Samaritans, it actually starts now in the story, live for them. Right? I mean, come back to the conversation here. A Samaritan woman says, all right, I know the Messiah is going to make these things clear. What does Jesus say about himself? Right? I mean, it's helpful to know that the Samaritans, this is what they were looking for. For them, the, the, the Messiah was a teacher. Uh, they, they embraced the, the, the prophecy, the hope of Deuteronomy 18, that a prophet like Moses will come, the Taheb, he will explain everything. And Jesus' response to her, I am. I am he. I am the one speaking to you. And so it's, it, yeah, it's a confession that the, I'm the guy that's going to make this possible. But it's also, he, it's the Greek phrase, ego eimi, which all the way through John is a confession of his divine, being 100% divine, that I am God coming in human flesh. You're talking to the Messiah. And this is the Lord of the Scriptures, come as a person, so that you might worship in spirit and truth. And in her limited understanding, that launched her into mission. Right? The experience of his love, the understanding that he's here, and that I can worship God now, that's all she had. And she went back home and said, hey, come and see, see if this is the Christ, if this is the Messiah. Her worship sent her back to witness at home. Right. She runs home to her neighborhood and says, perhaps he is the Messiah. And I, This is the big point this morning. All right, if, if you have had that worship experience uh, where, where your heart's been strangely warmed by the love of God, in Christ in particular, that you've had him say to you, I, I, I know you through and through, you're more sinful than you'd, you'd ever care to admit in public. And yet I love you to the depths, the depths of hell itself. Look at what I went through for you. If you've had that kind of experience, that forms you into a missionary because it takes your affections off of what you were worshiping and was, were, was disappointing and onto Jesus whose steadfast love endures forever. And you're willing to go say to others, come and drink. Right, come and see. He's, his love is satisfying. You'll be that weird person who everyone thinks is just religious, but really you're just saying, no, I'm, his love is well, better than wine, to quote Song of Songs. <laughs> right? That God's love, when it's poured into your heart through faith in Jesus by the Holy Spirit, this is the the. the the pattern of grace that will overflow towards your neighbors, towards those who have not heard the good news. You'll want others to know Jesus. That's the bottom line. 
And so for some of us in this room, right, you, you, you have to figure out what it means to worship Jesus in spirit and truth, to see that the hour is now. Jesus died in love for you and rose again and is willing to give you living water, the, his presence, his satisfying love, right? Drink deeply of that. Come and know the life-changing love of God, the faithful bridegroom, who loves his unfaithful creation. And then others of us need to taste that and let that naturally overflow into witness in the situations that God leads us into. I think that's the idea of rivers of living water flowing from your heart. Others get to come and drink. You're a blessing. So what do we learn about witness here? Um, right, there's many ways this Jesus communicates. There's many ways you can talk, do evangelism and, and talk about Jesus in public. But I think a couple of things we learned from her is uh, witness at its most simplest is a, a humble, bold invitation. All she says is come and see, right? She gives the same invitation as the disciples in John chapter 1. She says, come and see if Jesus is telling the truth. He says he's the Messiah, is he? Uh, we would say, you know, come and see if his love really is satisfying. And see if, Jesus, if you're real, meet with me. Reveal yourself to me. It's a, a humble invitation because she's not hiding her past, right? Come and see everything I've ever done. It's, it's the kind of witness that doesn't come out with any sense of superiority, and it's bold because she's going to people who used to shame her, to people who know her sin. And she invites them anyway. We don't know if they're actually enemies. We don't know exactly what the relationship is like, but it's, it's, she's at least an outcast going to the insiders and saying, come and see. She goes to the people who know her. And so... You know, bold, humble. She also gives an honest witness. And this is the hard part for us, I think, uh, where she goes and says, hey, this guy told me everything I've ever done. I imagine there were some dudes in that community who had red faces. <laughs> right? you know, part of being a witness is just saying, in sincere honesty, not bragging, not boasting, not making a, not trying to glory in the, the details of just saying, you know, this is what I was like, and this is what Jesus has done for me. Right? Just being honest. You know, I think as Christians, some of us are, find it, some of us more than others find it hard to talk about our sinful past. And I, I think part of, part of uh, being a witness, like the Samaritan woman, is just you're so overwhelmed by the love of God that you're no longer ashamed of the fact that you're a sinner. Even as you're ashamed of being a sinner, like you're willing to talk about it. This is what we do on a Sunday morning, right? Where you just say, hey, this is me. It's not pretty, and God loved me anyway. And I heard of one pastor who begins their weekly worship services by saying, welcome, we're glad you are here. This church is the local chapter of Sinners Anonymous. <laughs> You'll not find any perfect people in this room. 
That's why I like to, to use and reuse the call to worship that originally came from 10th Presbyterian Church of come if you're mourning and longing for comfort, if you feel worthless and wonder if God cares, if you fail and desire strength, if you sin and need a, a Savior, right? Come in all honesty of saying, I have need. I need God. You're welcome. Receive the welcome from Jesus, the friend of sinners. Come and worship. <laughs> what that looks like is going to depend on, on the person. But it's one of our most powerful witnesses, the most powerful testimony is to say, here's what the love of God has done for me personally. People will listen. Right? You know, when I was in seminary, we had an apologetics class. And it was, um, all right, it's the, the skill and art of learning to defend the faith, right? It's, some of it's, you learn philosophy, you read Cornelius Van Til and wonder what you just read. You know, there's all these big brains that are trying to articulate there's really good reasons to be a Christian, and then you had to, we had to sit with the big brain, the professor, and he pretend, we did a little role play where he pretended to be a non-Christian, and we just had to give reasons for what we believed. And for me personally, the hardest thing, I'm not, if I have time, I can think philosophically, but it's not my natural bent. The most powerful witness I had was just telling him the story of being broken and Jesus putting me back together again. <laughs> and that was, that was my grade based on being honest, Right? In our, in our culture, um, that, those are the most powerful testimonies. You say, I'm, I'm being real right now. Jesus loves me. Right? And it, as, that, as you come and worship, that'll give you eyes for the harvest. We're, we'll wind down here. Right? Do you see that the pattern of worship leading to witness is just a normal part of the Christian life? Right? Jesus says to his disciples, even as they uh, look at him like, why are you talking to a woman? Um, and, and they get into this whole conversation about just trying to get him to eat. Jesus says, my food is to do my Father's will. And then he, he's trying to get his disciples' eyes onto people. Right, look, the, the fields are white for the harvest. I mean, for Jesus, the activity, the activity of loving people, of, of bearing witness to who God is, of leading them into God's presence, right? telling them the truth, meeting them in their shame, right? that for him, that is as central as eating food, doing his Father's will. And he's trying to get his disciples to look around and say, you know, by nature, you want to look at these people as your enemies, they're Samaritans. But the fields are white for harvest. Right? There are loads of hurting people like the Samaritan woman and her neighbors who do not know the love of their creator. So look around and rejoice because the sower and reaper are together <laughs> celebrating that people are coming to faith. And that's the way the story is framed, right? Where Jesus says sower and reaper are celebrating together as it goes from Samaritan woman sowing, and the disciples getting to watch the Samaritan people come to faith because of her testimony and Jesus' words. Right? And so the connection we need to see right, is that there's harvesting that needs to happen in every community across the world. Right? That there are people that need loved 
and need an encounter with Jesus, that they might worship in spirit and truth. Yeah. The example, of course, is the Samaritan woman with confidence sharing, sharing the good news in her limited understanding. But her worship experience now, as the hour came to her now, gave her the ability to participate in the harvest. And it just started by saying, come and see Jesus. So do you have eyes like that? I mean, that, that's the hard question for me and for you. Is As a church, do we look at our neighbors through the lens that Jesus looks at people? Yeah. White for the harvest. I'll say other, words, other places that uh, you know, the, the labor, laborers are few. And so pray, pray to God for, to send laborers into the harvest. But part of, part of the eyes of a Christian is to see our neighbors... Um, as people to be loved with the grace of God. Right. Even if it looks impossible. I'll end with this. Uh, do you know how the, the church in Korea was started? Um, right, that you know, Korea in the 1800s was a closed country. Uh, they did not like outside influence. They definitely didn't want Westerners. And so if you, if you took step on, on the shores of Korea, uh, you were likely going to be killed. Right? And there's a, a bunch of guys that got together and they, a bunch of adventurers, probably a bunch of young dudes who, who, who wanted to, to break that. And so they, they, they got a ship, the General Sherman, and planned to take, just to go meet the Koreans, try and open the doors to trade and all these things. And there was a, a missionary named Robert Welsh, um, and he, he had been praying for Korea because he had been in China, he'd met some Koreans, and understood that their Korean neighbors could read a Chinese Bible. So he just wanted to get Jesus into the, another country. And so he, uh, I think, argued and persuaded and who knows, got, him, got, his, got himself a seat on this ship in 1866. But once they got up and got inland on, on this river that they were going up, the Koreans came out on both sides of the river and just started shooting at the ship. Right. And so the, the Koreans couldn't kill them or hurt them while they were on the ship. They were hiding, and the, the outsiders couldn't get off the boat, so there was this long conflict. But eventually the boat, as they tried to leave, got stuck in the rapids. And so the, the local people started push, pushing out burning boats to set the the Westerners' boats on fire. And once that happened, um, you know, they knew their, their time was up. And so all the Westerners jumped off the boat with their guns and their swords and started fighting for their lives. Every single one of them was put to death by the Koreans. But there was one strange dude that the Koreans remembered. There was this white guy who wasn't fighting with guns or swords. He was throwing books at people. He was just chucking Bibles. Right? And even as he was being beaten to death, clubbed, he was shoving Bibles into the hands of his persecutors. Well, 30 years later, another Presbyterian missionary, Sam Moffat, came to this part of Korea after the doors had opened to teach the Bible. And he found a local who, was, who had one of those old Chinese Bibles ready to learn, uh, ready to come and see. 
Right? That was only possible because one man right, looked at the, the world as, as a harvest field ready to be served in love. That's an extreme example, but do you have eyes for the harvest, a willingness to speak up? Because if you've experienced the grace and forgiveness of Jesus and you worship in spirit and truth, that'll overflow into witness because we always talk about what we worship. And perhaps your story will be like that, that of the Samaritan woman, where the neighbors will come and say, you know, we, we believe now, not just because of your testimony, but because we heard Jesus ourselves. He's the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Father, I pray for... Um, I just thank you for the wonder of the gift of your, your steadfast love, uh, your, your scandalous love that, it, that satisfies us, that meets us where we're at. And I pray that as that, your Spirit would pour out your, your love into our hearts and that uh, as we believe, our hearts would express our faith in love for our neighbors, willing to speak up, and to work through whatever discomfort we may have, that we too might be a people who say, come and see to our neighbors. So give us eyes to see the, the fields that are white for harvest, and that we might rejoice as those who sow and as those who reap. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing our closing song, Facing a Task Unfinished. <laughs>